Hey, if you have a Bible, open up to Genesis 42. Genesis chapter 42. Uh, and if you don't have one, that's okay. We'll have the scripture on the screen for you so you can read along with us. We're going to be continuing and resuming, I should say, our series, A Family for the World. We have been looking at Genesis chapters 12 through what's going to be 50, and we're going to conclude uh, this series next Sunday. So next Sunday will be the end of this series. I hope you've enjoyed looking at the story uh, of this family that God chose to represent himself on earth, starting with the patriarch Abraham and his descendants and their stories as we've been seeing. So we're going to continue that in just a second, but I'd like to pray and ask the Lord to bless his word specifically today uh, that we would receive it in our hearts, that we would understand it, and that we would leave here ready to live it out. So let's pray for that. Would you join me? Lord Jesus, we love you and we thank you for bringing us here to hear the word of God and to worship you. So Lord, I pray now through your Holy Spirit that you would speak to our hearts through your word and that the story we look at today would resonate with us and that we would leave here more equipped to truly live for you, but not just that, Lord, and more in love with you. Lord, would you stir our hearts and motivate us and move us to be more in love with you, to love you deeply so that we can love each other as you have loved us. It's in your name I pray, amen. So a couple weeks ago when we, we uh, picked off or we left off with the story of Joseph, all right? So you have Abraham was the man that God chose out of this world, right, to be, uh, uh, to be the person who would create and, and a family would come from him to, to be his representatives in this earth to truly show the world what God is like. And so Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons. And we've been looking specifically at the 11th of the 12, uh, a boy named Joseph. Now, if you recall, uh, two weeks ago when we when we concluded that part of Joseph's story, his brothers had sold him into slavery, all right? Now, that sounds crazy, and you're like, well, why did that happen? Well, Joseph was Jacob's favorite child. He showed explicit uh, favoritism to Joseph, and he even made him a coat of many colors and, and gave him that beautiful coat, and, and so his brothers were disgusted at the favoritism shown to their younger brother by their dad. And so they decided to get rid of him and they came up with this plot and they ended up selling him to a caravan on its way to Egypt. So this caravan takes Joseph to Egypt. But the crazy thing is that 20 years have now gone by when, we, when you get to Genesis chapter 42 and you wouldn't believe it. But this 17-year-old boy who was sold into slavery by his own family is now second in charge of the whole nation of Egypt. He pleased Pharaoh by having this ability to interpret dreams. Joseph was a dream interpreter. He could tell you what your dreams meant. I would love to have him on standby, right? When sometimes, you know what I mean? You wake up some mornings, you're like, what was that? That was weird, right? Joseph could tell you what your dream meant. And he did that. He impressed Pharaoh. And so Pharaoh made him second in command of the whole nation of Egypt. Who would have thought, right? Who would have thought that this 17-year-old 
teenage boy with this ability to interpret dreams would be sold as a slave and then end up working his way all the way up to a palace to being second in command. And so in some of these dreams that Joseph interpreted of Pharaoh, there was one in particular where Joseph told Pharaoh, hey, there's going to be, uh, the next 14 years are going to be really interesting. So the first seven years, there's going to be great harvest. There's going to be plenty of food, and, and you're going to have all this abundance of crops yielding uh, for you and, and, and the nation. And he said, but, but, so that, that's the good news, but the bad news is the seven years after that are going to be severe famine, really bad. So Joseph came up with this wonderful plan as to how to navigate through those 14 years, the seven of plenty and the seven of famine. And so that brings us to Genesis 42, where the whole Middle East at this point in history is suffering a severe famine. Genesis 42 is where we're going to pick up. Joseph is in charge in Egypt. But his father and brothers are back home in Canaan. Here we go, verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? So that's pretty much translated, what are y'all doing just standing around here looking at each other doing nothing? Come on, there is food for sale in Egypt. We're about to starve. It's that bad. So why don't you guys go get us some food instead of just standing here? That's what he's saying to his sons. Verse 2. And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, that's his youngest brother, right, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happened to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. So like I said, this famine is reaching far beyond the borders of Egypt. So the ancient Egyptians were suffering, but they had food because of Joseph's great plan, right? They had stored up lots of grain in these storehouses. So now they have so much in abundance that they are able to sell some of that as foreigners come in from the surrounding nations can come and buy this food. That's what Jacob has heard about. That's what he sends his sons to do. Verse six, now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Now, stop right there. Do you remember a few weeks ago when we started this story of Joseph? We saw him have this dream as a teenage boy that his brothers were bowing down to him. Remember that? Well, some 20 years later, look at this. It's coming true. That was a prophetic dream. Verse 7, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And that's understandable, right? I mean, the last time they saw him, he had been thrown into a pit and they drug him out and sold him to slaves or as, as a slave. And when he was 17 years old, now he's about 
uh, 37 years old and, and he's wearing Egyptian clothing. He's grown up, right? He's, and, and who would have thought? These brothers never would have thought that he would probably A, be alive and B, much less at the second in command of all of Jesus, so, of all of Egypt. So they don't recognize him, but obviously these brothers haven't changed very much. Joseph recognizes them. Verse nine, and Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. I mean, we've sold our brother into slavery before and lied about it and covered it up, but we've never been spies, right? Verse 12, he said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And what he means there is the, uh, where Egypt may be weak in their defense and their military and, and their, their borders, right? Verse 13, and they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this... You shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. So Joseph knows his brothers have come to buy food from him and he has a plan here, we're going to see, but he accuses them of being spies, which was a big accusation. So he has them arrested. So he puts his brothers in prison for three days. So after three days, Joseph lets them out of prison and he begins this plan. See, Joseph has a plan to test these brothers. What is he testing? What is he looking for? He's looking to see okay, have you guys changed? Are you still the same old guys who hated me, who were jealous of me and just got rid of me and didn't care and didn't love me? Who are you? I mean, I know who you are, but who are you really? Joseph wants to know. He's testing their true character to see if they've changed at all in these last 20 years. So the story goes on. We're gonna skip a few verses. It's a long story today. So here's what he does, okay? He holds, he holds one of them hostage. So after three days in prison, he holds one of them hostage, Simeon, and he sends the other nine brothers back to Canaan with grain so they can feed their starving families. But he has one condition. He says they must bring Benjamin back with them. Now, remember, who Benjamin is. He's the youngest of the 12 brothers or the 12 sons of Jacob. He is Joseph's only full brother, right? I mean, there's different moms here. Okay, so, so Joseph and Benjamin are from the same mom, Rachel. Rachel was Jacob's favorite wife. He showed favoritism to her and therefore he shows favoritism to Joseph at once. Now he thinks Joseph's dead and now he's showing favoritism to Benjamin, his only surviving son of Rachel. So Joseph wants to see, will they bring back his full brother, Benjamin, to Egypt and prove 
that they are honest people. Perhaps even more, though, Joseph wants to see how they will treat Benjamin. How are they treating him now that he's the favorite? Are they treating him just like they did Joseph? Are they jealous of him? Do they mistreat him? Again, this is all a test, you see, by Joseph to see if these brothers have changed at all since betraying him 20 years before. But before they go back home, before they leave Egypt, Joseph puts grain in their sacks, but he also has the money that they use to buy the grain. He puts it, he hides it in their sacks individually. So he puts the money back. He gives them the money back. So when the brothers later return home and they empty their sacks and there's grain, but there's money and and their father Jacob sees it too and they're like, oh my goodness, this is terrible. We, We know we didn't put our money back here. We paid for this. Right? We, we paid for this, but here's the money, right? It's like if you've ever, you know, accidentally, your kid has accidentally walked out of a store with, you know, something you're like, oh my goodness, we didn't pay for that, right? Nobody's ever seen that happen before? Okay. Well, it happened to us. <laughs> we took it back. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's kind of that feeling where you're like, oh no, I have done something wrong. I didn't mean to, right? It was an accident. But now we're in trouble, right? And so that's exactly what they're thinking. They know something's up. It appears that they've stolen this money somehow. So they tell Jacob they have to bring Benjamin back with them. But Jacob won't have it. No, right? Jacob is still playing the favoritism game and he is not willing to risk his favorite son going back with them and potentially meeting his death. So that takes us to Genesis chapter 43, all right? So look down with me to Genesis 43, verses 1 through 5. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. Right? I mean, it's bad. It's really bad. They have to go back to Egypt and get more food. But Judah, one of the brothers, said to him, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. So Judah's trying to tell his dad, listen, we cannot go back there and buy more grain unless Benjamin comes with us. Verse four, he says, if you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Now, keep in mind, one of their brothers, Simeon, is in prison this whole time in Egypt, and nobody seems to care, right? Okay, Jacob doesn't want to let Benjamin go, but Judah, one of Jacob's other sons, he gives himself as a pledge for Benjamin's safety, all right? Look down at verse nine. I will be a pledge. This is Judah speaking. He says, I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. So Judah is stepping up. Finally, one of the brothers has some courage and says, all right, listen, put it on me. Put it on me. If I do not bring Benjamin back, put it on me. So Jacob reluctantly agrees. And the brothers return back to Egypt. And they bring double the money, right? So they bring the money that was given to them in the sacks and money, more money to buy food. So they're repaying Joseph with the money, but they also bring some gifts. They bring a nice gift basket of almonds and all kinds of nice things to eat, and they take Benjamin. 
So they return to Egypt and stand before Joseph again. Look at verse 16. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys, right? Now, they're just scared to death, right? I mean, they cannot imagine what's about to happen. They come to buy food. They're hoping for a quick entrance and a quick exit, right? They just want to get in, get Simeon, get out, and go home and survive with the grain that Joseph gives them. But now they're being invited to his house, right? That's not, I mean, they, they really think they're in trouble now, right? Why on earth is he taking them to his own house? Look, I mean, they even say he's going to assault us, right? So they decide to be forthcoming and they tell the steward of the house about the money situation in the following verses here. And surprisingly, when they tell the steward of the house about the money and, and how, listen, we're sorry, this was a misunderstanding. We didn't steal this money. The steward of the house says, it's okay. Don't be afraid. Your God put the money there. This is getting interesting, right? Then, then they release Simeon from the prison to rejoin his brothers. And they get ready for Joseph to come home and join them for dinner. And look what happens next. Chapter 43, verse 26. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he alive? Is he still alive? They said, your servant, our father is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. And then look what happens in verse 30. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, serve the food. They served him by himself, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs, and they drank and were merry with them. You see, they still don't know who Joseph really is. The brothers don't know that that's, that's Joseph. They have no idea. Yet, Joseph welcomes them into his house. He gives them food from his own table 
He treats them as the most special of guests. And why would he do that? Why would Joseph show so much hospitality, grace, and love, and compassion to the people who betrayed him, sold him as an object, devalued his humanity, put him through pain and suffering and misery. Why would he treat them so special and so graciously? I want to stop the story right there. We're going to finish next week. But for now, in light of this suspenseful, dramatic part of the story, what can we learn? I think we can see two vantage points here of what I would call transforming grace. Transforming grace is really what's happening in this snippet of the grander story of Genesis. But you can look at it from two different angles or vantage points, if you will. First of all, from the brothers. If you look at this story and what's happening here from their perspective, you see grace is received. So what does it look like when you receive grace upon grace? Remember how we started this story today. At the beginning of chapter 42, the situation was bleak in Canaan. It was dire. It was terrible. The family of Jacob was literally heading towards starvation. And the brothers were just standing there looking at each other, it says. They were looking at each other, empty-handed, desperate, and lost. But did you notice by the end of chapter 43, did you notice what the phrase, it says, they were looking at each other again. But this time it says, in amazement. Amazed at the provision, the mercy, the favor that they've received and they don't deserve. And they've received it at the expense of Joseph. You see, I believe this is analogous of the greater transformation that has happened in the hearts of these once callous, wicked brothers. I mean, these brothers at one point were so jealous of Joseph. They were so self-centered. They were callous. They could care less. They could not care less of what happened to their brother. They betrayed him. They didn't care about him at all. They left him for dead until they were able to make a profit off of him and sold him with no remorse. I mean, if this was a story, if this was a story we saw in the modern day world, we would be outraged. If we saw this on the news, that someone did this somewhere in our city or our, our country and we, we saw this and we heard about this, we would be outraged. We would be calling for justice. We would be saying, well, shame on these brothers. They must be arrested. They must be punished. But as Joseph tests them, they don't know who he is. What do you see happening? You see a change taking place. When contemplating why they were in trouble in Egypt, probably in those three days that they were in that prison, they started realizing something. They started admitting guilt for their past sins. I want to take you back to chapter 42 verses 21 and 22, where 
we skipped over previously, but listen to this. They said, then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben, Reuben, the oldest brother, answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. I mean, for once, these brothers are concerned with truth. Finally, they actually care about the truth and they actually care about somebody besides themselves. They say, in truth, we are guilty. You see that? There is an acknowledgement happening in the hearts and minds of these brothers. Because of these situations, because of what God is orchestrating, they begin to admit guilt. They begin to acknowledge their sin, which is the first step, always, the first step toward true reconciliation in our lives with God and with others. There's not going to be true reconciliation in your life between you and the Lord and you and someone else if we do not admit our guilt and our sin. There's a confession of sin here that opens the way for real repentance to happen. And how do we know? Right? How do we know that they are changing? How do we know that these brothers are different than they were 20 years before? Well, that's what I think Joseph is testing them to find out. But how do we know it's real? Look at their lives. Look at their actions. Their behavior and their words are truly changing. As theologian Alan Ross points out, this episode presents the brothers in a different light than before. You see, whereas previously with Joseph, they didn't care about their responsibility to protect him as their youngest brother, but now with Benjamin, they are willing to take that responsibility. Whereas before, they lied to their father about how Joseph supposedly died. Remember that? They dipped his coat in blood and told their father that he was killed by an animal. Now they are honest and they're forthcoming about the money that was in their sacks. They're not lying about that. They're telling the truth now. Whereas before they were driven by jealousy of the favoritism shown to Joseph, now they are truly grateful for what they've been given and show no signs of jealousy. Especially, think about that, when, when Benjamin, the new favorite, when Benjamin receives five times more food portions than them, they show no sign of jealousy or envy. They all are eating and drinking and being merry. So how do we know? How do we know these brothers have changed? Look at their new behavior. Look at their new lives. Something is happening inside these brothers. Those changes, changes like that do not happen. Changes like that do not happen in a person without a radical reckoning of the grace of God. Joseph, I believe, is the instrument here, along with the general situations that the Lord has orchestrated in their lives. It is God's power here on display that is drawing the hearts of these men to true repentance so that they can live freely without themselves being slaves to their jealousy and their envy and their self-centeredness. Romans 2, verse 4, Paul said it this way, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? 
It's the kindness and the grace of God that these brothers are receiving that is actually the transforming power within them. And it's being evidenced in their behavior. It's God's kindness. It's his blessing. It's his forbearance. That means withholding punishment. It's his patience towards us. It's his grace that melts a callous heart. That's what Ezekiel 36, 26 is saying. It says, and I will give you, what? A new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. The famine, their three days of imprisonment, the testing by Joseph, the journey to and from Egypt and back again. All of this is under the direction of a kind, gracious, sovereign God, even as painful and fearful as most of these moments were, was not God changing the hearts of these men? The grace and kindness of God in our lives sometimes appears to us to be unpleasing. Sometimes it may have the appearance of being distressing. But God in his infinite wisdom and in his infinite power and in his infinite love is moving the hearts of his people to repentance, to true transformation. The brothers are awakening to this reality of what God is doing in their hearts. And I ask you, are you awakened to what the Lord is doing in your life? In what ways is he leading you and guiding you through kindness? It's kindness. Let's define it correctly, though it may appear in the form of something unpleasant or a circumstance that if it were up to you, you would change. But in the kindness of a Lord, of a father who loves his children, he is leading you, perhaps disciplining you to become a different person, to melt a heart of stone. That's what's happening in the lives of these brothers, though it may not appear so on the surface, they are receiving God's grace in unexpected ways, leading them to repentance. He's preparing their hearts. You know that. I mean, let me just go ahead and give you the spoiler. He's preparing their hearts for something powerful that's about to take place in the next chapter, where 20 years of guilt and shame and lies are all about to come crumbling down by the power of forgiveness and reconciliation. That's the brothers. What about Joseph? From his vantage point, we say we see someone who's giving grace, right? Grace given. What obligation does Joseph have here to be compassionate or gracious in any way to his brothers? I mean, these brothers, what do they deserve? These brothers only deserve punishment. They only deserve wrath for their sins. They only deserve the wrath of Joseph for betraying him and fabricating a story for 20 years about how he supposedly died. Now, yes, Joseph is using his power in this story to test them, but what's Joseph's end goal? What's going on in his heart? Well, look at chapter 42, verses 23 through 25. This was earlier when Joseph... So he wept a second time. This is the first time he wept. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. In other words, there was an interpreter Joseph was kind of pretending to use. 
But Joseph can speak their language. He knows what they're saying. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Joseph, he's, he's picking up on their potential remorse. And it, it moves him to tears. And instead of giving the brothers the wrath they deserve, he fills them with food and money. And then when Joseph meets his only full brother, Benjamin, for the first time in 20 years, it happens again, right? In verse 30, chapter 43, he had to leave the room because he was breaking down. Joseph was, the, the emotion of 20 years of wondering how his family was doing. And then they just show up. And he can't handle it emotionally. He has to leave the room and he goes to his chamber and he, and he just weeps. You see, Joseph still deeply cares about his family and being reconciled to them. And, and this weeping is evidence, I believe, of, of God's transforming grace changing Joseph. The brothers aren't the only ones who's being changed by God's grace. Joseph is being changed as, and transformed as he extends as he gives God's grace to others, to his brothers. And perhaps the most astonishing thing about this whole episode is that Joseph invites these men who once left him for dead in a pit into his nice house, into his home. And now the brothers, they're still afraid. They think this is a trap. They think he's going to assault them. But what, is, what does Joseph do? Remember, they, they don't know his identity, but he welcomes them into his house to dine with them. And instead of giving them the punishment and the wrath they deserve, he shows them grace and mercy and favor at his own expense. It's hard to do that, right? It's hard to show grace like that to someone who has seriously wronged you. And I don't ever want to undermine that. It's very difficult, perhaps one of the most relational, relationally difficult things we're ever called to do as Christians in this world is to show grace to someone who's wronged us. But hear me out. You will only give as much grace to someone else as you are grateful for in your heart that you've been given. You will only give as much grace as you know and believe you have received yourself. You and I deserve, you see, we, we deserve to be punished. And that's exactly why understanding this story is so important. You see, when you receive God's grace, it changes you. And when you extend God's grace to someone else, that changes you too. Joseph extending grace and forgiveness of God to his brothers, that's changing him. You see, I think this story is analogous to how we have been treated by God. You see, like Joseph's brothers, we each have betrayed our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. We, you, I, me, we have all betrayed him 
because of our own choice to not love him and worship him above all things in our lives, we have put other things ahead of God. We have committed treason against the king, creator, ruler of the universe. Just like Joseph's brothers, we have betrayed Jesus. We all like sheep have gone astray. We are guilty of indifference towards the grace he's given us. We're guilty of shedding his blood. It was our sin that crucified him on that cross. Like Joseph's brothers, we all deserve for this rebellion against our holy creator. We all deserve punishment. We deserve his wrath. Punishment and wrath in this life by drowning in our guilt and our misery and our shame with no hope of transformation. That's what we deserve. Ultimately, we deserve eternal punishment and death for the consequence of our sin and our rebellion against God. But, but here's the thing. Like Joseph, but infinitely greater, Jesus has shown you grace by his kindness that leads you to repentance. Like Joseph, Jesus does not leave you empty-handed or alone and lost. He finds you. He feeds you. He provides for you. And you know what else? He welcomes you into his house. He gives us a seat at his table. And he provides for us more than we could ever need or want in spiritual provision. See, you and I deserve to be punished and never forgiven. But by the grace of God through Jesus, there is a prince ruling over us who lavishes his grace upon us and brings us, welcomes us in to his family, his home, and he calls us his own. How do you see God's powerful grace? How do you see it at work in your life? Maybe you're on the receiving end of grace. Someone has forgiven you. Someone has reached out to you and extended grace as God has done. And you've been on the receiving end of that and it's powerful. It's powerful to be reconciled, isn't it? Is he preparing you perhaps for a moment of forgiveness or reconciliation to take place between you and someone you love? Maybe, maybe you need to be on the giving end. Maybe you have been. Maybe you have forgiven someone who's wronged you and you feel, you know, the power of that transformation that it releases you from being a slave to resentment and bitterness that is absolutely controlling. But when you freely forgive and you show grace to someone who's wronged you, you know what that does? That frees you. That transforms you to be grateful for the grace of God given to you. You give it to someone else and you see the power of God reconciling and working and changing hearts and lives. You experience it. And what is the level of gratitude that you have today for this kind of grace in your life? 
Do you cherish the fact that you have a seat at the table in the house of God? Are you truly grateful for his provisions in your life, namely salvation and an eternal future in heaven? If you've received this amazing grace, then who do you need to give it to? Who in your life could you perhaps be holding a grudge against? And what relationship in your life is bitterness or resentment really controlling the situation? And I invite you, if you know the Lord here today already and you know you belong to him, but you're struggling with bitterness, resentment, holding a grudge against somebody, listen, I invite you to first look up and see the Lord's grace to you that you did not deserve. The love he has lavished upon you by coming to earth and dying in your place. Would you accept his forgiveness? Maybe that's what you need to do. Accept his forgiveness and then look at the person you need to forgive and humbly tell them, I don't deserve God's grace either. But as he has loved me, I want to love you. Maybe you're here today and you've never accepted God's grace and forgiveness. You've never truly turned away from trying to save yourself. And the truth is you're tired. You're tired of trying to live a good moral religious life. But the reality is there's never been an awakening. There's never been a moment where you have turned to the Lord and asked him to forgive you of your sin and you've confessed it to him and asked him to be the Lord of your life, to give you a heart, not of stone, but of flesh that feels and knows who he is and the purpose you were created for to glorify him. Maybe that's the decision you need to make today. Whatever the case is, if you need to talk with someone, I'll be available after the service. Kyle will be available. Come and find one of us. Talk to us. Find a Christian brother, a Christian friend that goes to church here already. Find them and talk to them. Confess to them. Ask them to walk with you through this journey. Whatever the case is, wherever you are, know today that there is a God who loves you and welcomes you into his home. But we must put truly our faith in him and accept his grace. Would you pray for me or pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for your love. Thank you that you came to earth and died in our place. The death we should have died so that you could welcome us into your family, adopt us through your resurrection power. Lord, you are alive and you make us alive when we turn away from our sin and put our hope and trust in you. You give us, Lord, heart of flesh, not of stone, so that we stand around looking at each other in amazement as the church, your people, proclaiming your goodness and your grace and what you've done for us. Now, Lord, may we be eager to go and do the same. Lord, would you give us humble hearts 
and gracious hearts as you have been to us. Lord, let us be to others. Would you help us to do this? Thank you, Jesus, for loving us in this way. It's in your name we pray. Amen.